Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. We're pleased to welcome today Juan Cole, who is professor of history at the University of Michigan. He's the author of, of many books and articles on Islam, including Sacred Space and Holy War and Modernity and Millennium. His blog, Informed Comment, Com covers the Middle East and has played an important role in informing the public about the Middle East and the Iraq War and the consequences of that war. Professor Cole, welcome to Berkeley. Thank you very much. Where did you do your undergraduate? Graduate work you did at undergraduate first. And well, uh, the, uh, my, uh, my undergraduate work I did at Northwestern. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I went to Northwestern because I had a dear friend uh, in, uh, when we were stationed in, in Asmara in Eritrea. Uh, who uh, was a couple years older than I, and he had gone to Northwestern, mm -hmm. and we had kept in touch. We corresponded. Uh, we had many of the same interests, and uh, so he encouraged me to apply there. Otherwise, I might not, being from, you know, my family settled ultimately in Northern Virginia, so mm -hmm. I might not have known much about uh, uh, the Chicago area, but uh, I applied uh, there on his recommendation, as well as a number of, the, of other places, and Northwestern uh, was very generous to me, and uh, so uh, I, I really felt I should go there. And then on to Columbia for graduate work in history? No, I was UCLA. UCLA, okay, mm -hmm. UCLA. Well, actually, there's an in-between. Uh, I finished at Northwestern in 1975. I, I had an opportunity my senior year to spend two quarters abroad on a scholarship, and I was able to design a project that would take me wherever I liked, and we had uh, stopped off in Beirut in 1968 mm. on the way back from Eritrea, and I'd fallen in love with the place. And so I spent two quarters of my senior year doing a research project in Beirut uh, while at Northwestern. And then I uh, graduated, and I, I came back to Beirut in, seven, in the fall of 75 in hopes of uh, doing an MA at the American University in Beirut uh, on Shiite Islam. Mm. That was my plan. Uh, and uh, the Civil War interposed itself, and I was displaced from there and went to Jordan and ultimately did the degree instead in Cairo at the American University in, in, in Cairo. I came back to Beirut uh, for a year and then uh, became clear to me that uh, Lebanon was just not going to be a hospitable place mm -hmm. uh, uh, to uh, uh, foreigners. And I, I was working in Beirut in 78, 79 for a newspaper. Uh, doing more translation really than journalism proper, uh, but uh, uh, it got some of the uh, the printer's ink in my blood and uh, taught me how to hmm. uh, read uh, quickly for and to distill information, to uh, put things in an inverted pyramid form, and uh, uh, to work under pressure. Often we would, uh, my editor would give me a, a story to translate and research and I'd have to have it back to him in two hours and, and, and so forth. And I would do that from six in the evening till 12 midnight or one o'clock in the morning uh, there in Beirut. Sometimes the Syrians and the uh, Maronites would fight and uh, the electricity would be knocked out and uh, we wouldn't know whether we'd be able to get the paper out the next morning or not. So we were finishing it up by, by hand and candlelight in case the electricity would come back on. Uh, so uh, that experience in Beirut, uh, where I was off and on between 75 and, uh, and uh, uh, spring of 79, was very formative hmm. for me. I lived through the beginnings of that civil war. Uh, I had been there also in the summer of 77. Uh, and um, 
then I went on to UCLA in, in 79, and, and by that time the Iranian Revolution had happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I wanted to do my dissertation on uh, Shiite Islam in Iran, if I could, and sort of the roots of the power of the clergy. Uh, nowadays, uh, it, it, it's no longer perhaps shocking to people that the Shiite clergy rule Iran. However, in 1978, no one was expecting mm -hmm. that to happen. Uh, the, the, the Shah seemed uh, a little shaky on his throne, but, uh, and the country could have gone in a number of directions. But clerical rules uh, was, was something that was not in, in, in any observer's mind, I think. Uh, so, however, because of the hostage crisis, uh, I was unable to go to Iran uh, and uh, wanted to work on Shiism, and I wanted to do field work because the subject was under-researched. Uh, there was, wasn't a, I don't think it was a good subject for a library dissertation at that time. Uh, and so I wanted to go out into the field, but uh, southern Lebanon was in flames. Uh, Iraq was under the Ba'ath government anyway, was fighting a, a, a war with Iran and wasn't a, a particularly appealing or safe place. Uh, probably couldn't have gotten a research visa for this subject there. Uh, and uh, if you went through the Shiite countries, they were just all closed to me. But I discovered uh, uh, from doing some uh, manuscript uh, research that uh, there were lots of Arabic and Persian manuscripts in India and Pakistan uh, from the 18th and 19th century that uh, would help to uh, explore the development of Shiite thought and institutions in that age. There was, in fact, a Shiite-ruled kingdom in northern India between the fall of the Mughal Empire and the rise of the British. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's what led me to South Asia. Uh, I, you, you've raised some interesting points, and one of the things that, that uh, is, is remarkably achieved in your blog, which we'll talk about later, uh, is this uh, reconciling the tension between the work of journalism which you've just told us you did, and the work of the academy. Uh, talk, reflect a little on that. I mean, uh, most often people don't do both well. They either do one or the other. What in, what in your background or your training or your genes <laughs> has empowered you to do that so well? Well, I, I, I think it was uh, the background uh, that I had. Uh, uh, you know, of course, I, in high school, sometimes worked on the school newspaper. I did that in Eritrea, actually. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, that experience that I had in Beirut, uh, where I was working for a newspaper, uh, w was good training. If you do something uh, like that uh, six or seven hours a day, every day for almost a year, uh, it, uh, uh, it, it really trains you in certain habits of thought. Uh, I think with journalism, uh, there, there are a number of essential uh, uh, things that one has to be careful about. Uh, sourcing, um, good journalism, you know, you want to have more than one source, uh, preferably three, and, and not from all the same uh, group. Uh, and uh, uh, I think a lot of bloggers get caught up. Uh, in, in, in errors uh, because of, of depending on a single source. Now, if you only have a single source uh, and uh, there's no way to get any other sources and you have what you think is an important story, then I, I think it, if, if you can find ways of verifying uh, other than other sources, uh, it, it might still be possible to go forward, but I think you should also signal to your readers uh, mm -hmm. that it's single source. Um, and then... Uh, just quickness, just being able to see the material, 
put it together in your mind, figure out how to tell that story, uh, and write it up uh, in, a, in, a, in a, a quick way. A lot of people just don't have those habits of thought, and it's very difficult for them. Sort of, it would drive a perfectionist crazy to have mm -hmm. to just be have this stuff out all of a sudden. I think uh, also, however, I should say that I don't do very much of what I think of as news gathering. Journalism has two major parts, news gathering and, uh, and commentary, uh, which, which jokingly called punditry, which is actually from a Sanskrit word. The pundits were, the, uh, uh, were, were a class of religious specialists originally who uh, gave forth religious opinions. Um, so um, uh, the professoriate has all along been a, an important part uh, of commentary in the press. And, and in that regard, I don't think I'm doing anything particularly uh, new or different. Uh, I'm, I'm writing what are essentially opinion pieces. The, the big difference is that in the old days you had to get your opinion pieces past a gatekeeper. And I found that the gatekeepers at the, at the major newspapers, uh, I, I had a sense sometimes I would call them about a, a piece that I'd submitted, in the sense that they were very suspicious of academics. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they began with a conviction, I think, that's, that's common among journalists, uh, uh, that academics can't write straight, uh, that, it's a little, that they're, they're obscure, uh, that they'll put the audience off or they won't be able to communicate well. And while there are certainly academics who uh, write in a convoluted manner, all, most academics have to teach 18-year-olds and they have to make their subject clear to them uh, and so in lecturing, academics are, are, are communicating to a general public all the time. So I, I, I think the journalists have a little bit of a prejudice there. And uh, getting past that prejudice is really difficult because th then they don't look at your piece seriously. You can't get it out of the slush pile. Uh, and the wonderful thing about blogging was that I could just demonstrate uh, that I could write. Uh, and the journalists and the editors began reading my, uh, my blog, and uh, some of them thought well of, of uh, my writing. And then they would invite me to write op-eds. Mm -hmm. I discovered that it's much better when the editor invites you to write, mm -hmm. write the op-ed. So, so in a way, and, and we, we, we should talk, mention to our audience, and we will in the transcript put uh, the, uh, the uh, 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 link to your uh, blog, which is called uh, informedcomment.com, or it can also no, be... No, it's, it's just informed comment. Informed comment. Oh, okay, informed comment. Okay. Uh, or Juan Cole. Uh, JuanCole.com, J-U-A-N-C-O-L-E.com. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, 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 it emerged, I think, a year after the attack at 9-11, or, or what, what just, year? Just six months. Yeah, just, just six months afterward. And it has become uh, an extraordinary global nodal point for information about the Middle East, but especially uh, about the Iraq war. Uh, and I want to talk about that, but I, I want to pursue something because I want this to also keep in the back of our minds the background in history because I read recently somewhere where you said that uh, uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense Wolfowitz, before the Iraq War, had uh, saw only the secular side of Iraq and uh, that uh, had no sense of uh, what the religious uh, impact would be once we invaded uh, Iraq. Uh, so you, when you started this blog, 
probably was one of the world's experts, great experts on the Shia religion. So you were able to bring uh, the history that you had been working on, the, the books that you had written, to help analyze and comprehend in, in, a, in a way that, that our leaders definitely were not, and maybe also the news media generally. Yeah, I have to say that it only gradually became apparent to me that the Washington power elite had no idea what it was talking about when it came to Iraq. Uh, and I, as this became apparent to me, I became extremely alarmed. Mm -hmm. uh, I wrote a piece for our international institute, uh, and was, I was asked to ask about. The, I was asked to write about the pros and cons of the war. Uh, and among the cons I mentioned was that the Shiites of Iraq would certainly uh, make an alliance with the uh, Ayatollahs in Tehran, uh, and moreover that if you overthrew uh, uh, Ba'athist Sunni Arab secular nationalism and discredited it, likely the, the Sunni Arabs in Iraq would uh, adopt a, a point of view closer to that of Al-Qaeda. And we had seen this in Egypt. Uh, it was the 1967 war in which Abdel Nasser, the great champion of secular Arab nationalism, was so humiliated uh, by Israel. Uh, it was in the wake of that that you had a big movement in Egypt uh, towards uh, Islamic revivalism. And, and indeed, uh, al-Jihad al-Islami of uh, Ayman al-Zawahri has its origins uh, in that period. So I expected uh, a, a religious revival in a post-Saddam Iraq. And uh, when I heard uh, uh, Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz on NPR in February of 2003 asserting that the uh, Shia of Iraq were secular and that the, there wasn't a problem of uh, U.S. troops uh, defiling holy cities uh, in Iraq, I, I was floored. I was, I was just very alarmed. I thought, they really have no idea, do they? Mm -hmm. uh, one, one of the, the, the problems that one has to think about uh, when one looks at the broader picture of the Middle East and our involvement in the Middle East is this whole question uh, which you have addressed, especially in, in the two books that I have here, Sacred Space and uh, Holy War. Let me hold it up for one second. And Modernity and the Millennium is this question of uh, the interface between Islam uh, in the Middle East and, and what we think of as um, modernity. Uh, address that question a little because there is a perception that the Middle East has remained medieval when in fact I think what you're arguing is that that reflects a lack of insight into the complexity of the way uh, actors in the region re respond to the elements of modernity. Yes, well, you know, uh, the, uh, the 19th century sociologist Auguste Comte put forward a stage theory of human history, and he located the theological stage in the medieval. Uh, and so it's been a tendency of Western observers ever since to see highly religious societies as still stuck in a previous stage. Uh, but, of course, uh, social science has developed since Comte, and uh, we now no longer think uh, uh, that, uh, that religion equals medieval. And if you think about it, the Solidarity Movement in Poland and the role of the Pope in uh, ending communism there uh, was a very modern phenomenon uh, involving 
dock workers and, uh, and, and modern kinds of institutions and in communications. Uh, and uh, the Khomeini movement in Iran uh, depended on uh, audio cassettes and uh, the BBC broadcasts and, uh, and was influenced by the Algerian Revolution and the, the thinking of uh, the, the, the left bank intellectuals in Paris as well as by Shiite thought. So these movements, of uh, religious movements in the contemporary world are not medieval even though observers tend to code them that way. And they, to the extent that they hearken back to medieval uh, themes, they often misrepresent the medieval. Uh, for instance, in medieval times, governments were not very powerful, and uh, they would really, you know, sort of come around once a year to collect taxes, and then you wouldn't hear from them very much. Uh, besides that, uh, they weren't in people's lives the way government is today, uh, and so the idea of a uh, an Islamic state, such as now has been instituted in Iran. No, we don't know about anything like that in the medieval period. Mm -hmm. They had kings and uh, potentates and uh, principalities uh, just like Europe did, and uh, there, was, there was no such thing as an Islamic state. Uh, occasionally you could maybe have small theocratic entities, but uh, uh, for the most part they were just uh, kingdoms and empires. Uh, so this, this, the, the, the religious revivalists, both in the Western world and in, in the Middle East, um, in their own minds, create an ideal medieval period to which they often hearken back. Uh, but they're not medieval, they're modern. And uh, modernity is a whole set of experiences, uh, modes, themes uh, that has transformed the world in the past uh, more than two centuries, uh, and which has been felt as alienating everywhere. I mean, it's often forgotten. I would say you know, Germany has had enormous difficulties with modernity. I mean, I think you, you see it in the, the Romantic movement and Hegel and uh, the uh, disillusionment with Napoleon and uh, the, um, uh, the authoritarianism uh, of the Bismarck period and how to deal with trade unions and, and so forth. And then, of course, uh, the whole uh, National Socialist uh, uh, tragedy. Uh, I don't think that modernity has come easily to the Germans, uh, and, uh, uh, and neither has it come easily to, to many in the Middle East, but this is not, this is not peculiar in modern history. Is it you, at, at one point in one of, uh, uh, in one of your books, you, you, you comment that it can be said that, I'm paraphrasing now, modernity hasn't, Generally, although there were these experiments in modernity, these 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 different histories than the one we traditionally look at, that on the whole uh, there has been a failing for modernity to take hold in the way uh, that it did in the West. If if that's fair, if that's a fair statement of your belief, then what do you see as the primary factors? accounting for this? Was it Western imperialism? Uh, has it in recent times been oil? Are there factors that we can identify uh, that uh, help us understand these particular failures in the Middle East? Well, I should be careful in saying that um, I was talking about a handful of uh, themes in modernity uh, with regard to the rise of popular sovereignty and parliamentary governance, for instance, um, 
conceptions of individual rights, uh, the uh, the women's movement, uh, um, a whole range of these things, and, and uh, coming to terms with the separation of religion and state, uh, and of course, all of these themes. Uh, are uh, challenging and have been challenging, and this is my point, uh, to all of the societies in the world. So, for instance, uh, the Swiss women didn't get the vote at a federal level until 1971, and there were some cantons where it was later. Uh, and uh, French women didn't get the vote until 1945. Uh, so when, when uh, the Middle East is criticized for uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, for instance, still does not have the vote for women. Uh, but uh, it, it's the, the Iranian women have had the vote since the 1960s, and uh, uh, and that's true in a number a number of other Middle Eastern countries. So it's not that far from 1945 to the 1960s. I mean, it, 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 the the difference in that regard is not so very great. And we're talking about a, 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 what is thought of as an advanced country like France. Uh, but um, with regard to parliamentary uh, rule. Um, Really, only Turkey, among the Muslim Middle East societies, uh, has come close to having uh, a fairly steady parliamentary regime. Although it's been punctuated by military coups uh, from time to time, the fact that Turkey joined NATO, uh, I think, helped to put pressure on its military always go, to go back to the barracks in the end. Now that it wants to join the European Union, uh, there's been pressure on it to liberalize on human rights issues and so forth. But uh, there aren't uh, there aren't any um, um, parliamentary regimes in the Middle East besides Turkey that that come close uh, to meeting international standards. Uh, of course, the Americans hope that Iraq eventually will. Uh, but um, and, and I, I'm accepting Israel because it, its origins really are from, from mostly from outside the region. Um, and uh, and you ask, you know, why? Why should that be uh, that we don't have more parliamentary regimes in the Middle East? Of course, uh, they were rare in East Asia, Southeast Asia, for much of the 20th mm -hmm. century as well. Um, Korea. Uh, only fairly recently has gone in that direction, and, and South Korea, uh, and uh, China still has not, and so forth. Um, so, the the question of these the political evolution of these countries is is a very complex one. But one could could point at certain things. For instance, and I, I do think that Western uh, Western influence has been uh, both a hindrance and a help in the, the direction of these societies. Iran, uh, after World War II, had a period of rel relatively lively parliamentary life. Uh, and uh, a nationalist prime minister was elected who uh, ultimately came into conflict with the British over the royalties the British were receiving from Iranian petroleum, which the Iranians felt were no longer sufficient. Uh, and the Iranians wanted uh, to renegotiate the deal and, and uh, get to get a better share of oil, oil price, oil income. And um, uh, the British absolutely refused and uh, wouldn't negotiate. And so the prime minister of the time, uh, Mohammad Mossadegh, uh, nationalized the Iranian petroleum. Uh, the United States and Britain led uh, an international boycott of Iranian petroleum, which was quite debilitating for the Mossadegh government and ulti ultimately 
uh, the MI6, the British intelligence, uh, came up with a plan to overthrow Mossadegh, which it uh, couldn't implement because the British had all been kicked out of Iran, but which had passed to the CIA, and ultimately the CIA uh, carried out this plan. Um, at the time, the, the uh, Eisenhower administration was convinced that Mossadegh uh, was uh, leaning towards uh, uh, the communists. Uh, this was not true, uh, but uh, in any case, uh, the parliamentary experiment in Iran ended uh, because the Americans ended it, and they brought the Shah back and put him on the throne as an absolute monarch. So you have the United States, uh, which fought a, a, a seven-year war against George III uh, to end absolute monarchy on this continent, uh, actually imposed absolute monarchy uh, on Iran, uh, and. Uh, uh, it is certainly the case that in trying to impose it, they uh, created an unstable situation which eventuated in the Iranian Revolution. Uh, so I don't think that in every instance authoritarianism in the Middle East can be explained by external uh, uh, intervention, but there's been a lot of external intervention and it usually hasn't been helpful to uh, uh, human rights or, or political freedom. Uh, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. Uh, uh, they were very influential in, in South Yemen. Uh, the, there are persistent allegations, and we historians haven't seen the documents yet, so we don't know if they're true, but there are persistent allegations that the United States helped to engineer the uh, 1963 and 1968 Ba'ath coups uh, in, in Iraq uh, because it was alarmed at rising communist influence. Uh, so certainly external interventions of various sorts uh, have been unhelpful. I argue in one of my books that in 1882, in the 19th century, uh, a parliamentary movement uh, arose in Egypt, uh, which the British uh, intervened to stop uh, because uh, they were afraid it would threaten their various economic interests in the region. Uh, so. Um, uh, that's one, uh, but then uh, there are lots of other factors. Uh, you know, a lot of political scientists are convinced that parliamentary rule is uh, is helped by a certain amount of affluence in society, that, that there's kind of $8,000 a year per capita. is not It's not an absolute necessity, but because India obviously is an exception. But on the whole and by and large, that seems to be the, the current level of support that one needs uh, for a parliamentary regime. And if you think about it, part of what's going on in a democracy is that the people are strong against the government. Mm -hmm. The government can't just walk all over them. They, there are constituencies that, that are able to influence the government in various ways, lobbying and, 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 and pressure points and so forth. So um, uh, the wealthier uh, the society is, uh, the more likely it's able to strike a better bargain with, with the government. It has more resources vis-a-vis -vis the state. So the Middle East, um, uh, aside from the oil states, which are small mostly and, 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 and somewhat peculiar, the Middle East is, is, is a very poor place. Um, Morocco, uh, Egypt, Algeria, uh, Syria, they're simply not wealthy societies, mm -hmm. and, and uh, so the, the societies in that regard, uh, with regard to resources, uh, uh, are often weak vis-a-vis -vis the state. Uh, but it's clear that, uh, as you suggested earlier, that what cannot be ignored are the religious currents 
uh, at, uh, uh, that sort of are a foundation of, of all of these societies uh, throughout the region. Uh, uh, and uh, that then leads to the importance of this question of the separation of church and state, which we achieved apparently, you know, in the West, although, again, this is subject to cycles as we're now sort of seeing. Uh, talk a little about that in relation to Iran and Iraq, because you, as somebody who's quite knowledgeable uh, and had done much research on Iran, were, were able to point out in your book that Khomeini was a distinctive, in quotes, modern definition of the relationship of the religion to the state, and it would be one that might not necessarily uh, be repeated in Iraq, one could assume. Talk, talk a little about that tension and the possibility, the, how it helps us understand outcomes and the possibilities for achieving this breakthrough uh, uh, with regard to popular sovereignty, even in the context of societies where religion is so important. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that religion is more important to most people in the Middle East than it is, say, to most Americans. Uh, but I think it does play a different role in politics. And I think it does have to do with um, the legacy of colonialism uh, and then uh, the current situation in which most of these countries are small and weak uh, and tend to be dominated by the European powers of the United States. Uh, I see the religious themes in the Middle East really as a form of nativism, as a, as a claim on an indigenous identity. If, if one is an Egyptian and living in the early 20th century under British rule, so that Lord Cromer is making laws for you and deciding about your life uh, when you never elected Lord Cromer and uh, maybe don't even approve of him, uh, then uh, if you want to assert yourself as an Egyptian and to say that there's, a, there's a, a real Egyptian identity that's different from the British and which is authentic and, and which has uh, claims for ordering Egypt that are superior to the claims of, of British colonialism, uh, then, then what makes Egyptians distinctive? Well, one of the things is that they are Sunni Muslims. Uh, and so appealing to Islam uh, as an anti-imperial or anti-colonial theme is a natural thing to do. And uh, I don't think it's so hard to imagine that if a, uh, if a foreign country, uh, a non-Christian country, were ruling uh, California, uh, or Alabama or Michigan, I think you would find uh, that uh, religious groups uh, uh, who, who defined America as a Christian nation uh, might, might, uh, might make certain claims in that regard and, and uh, organize to try to get rid of the foreigners. Uh, so I would argue that the salience of religion in the Middle East does have uh, something serious to do with, uh, with uh, colonialism and, and, and neo-imperialism. Uh, that it's a form of nativist politics. And, and it's not the only form of nativist politics that's in the area. You've had more or less fascist uh, uh, movements in, in, in the Middle East. Um, uh, there's, uh, there's such a party, an ultra-nationalist party in Turkey. Uh, there was a, a Young Egypt party, which was relatively secular, but uh, Egyptian nationalist in the 1930s, which modeled itself, I think, on the, on the fascist groups, not so much the Nazis, but, say, Mussolini and Franco. 
uh, you've, you even have that among uh, the, uh, the Lebanese Christians, the Maronites uh, uh, in Lebanon uh, in the 1970s. Many of them joined the Falangist Party, which was explicitly uh, modeled on uh, Franco and Mussolini. Uh, so, uh, and that's not a religious uh, sort of phenomenon. So it's a different kind of nativism. Those, what I'm calling fascist parties, would appeal to ancient symbols, uh, to the cedars of Lebanon or to the Phoenicians, uh, or in Egypt, uh, you know, there was a cult of the ancient Pharaonic civilization. Uh, so the non-religious people who wanted to uh, assert uh, a nativism would find other bases for doing it. But in Iran, uh, because of the uh, overthrow of Mossadegh by the United States and the close alliance the Shah had with the United States as an imperial power, uh, I think Shiite Islam, uh, which is distinctive to Iran uh, uh, and, and a very important part of Iranian national identity uh, uh, in the modern period, and, and going back to the 1500s, it's been part of Iranian life uh, in a big way, uh, the emphasis on Shiite Islam is, is, is again, a, a kind of nativist reassertion of local identity and uh, local forms of polity, local law, uh, local custom against uh, the imperial impact. And uh, uh, so I don't think most Iranians in 1978 were all that religious. Uh, and I don't think most of the people who made the revolution uh, envisaged that it was a revolution for clerical rule. And once the clerics got into power, they had to struggle mightily to stay there. They, they killed 10,000 uh, uh, guerrillas of the Mujahideen movement, and uh, they uh, had to round up a lot of other people and threaten them or uh, kill them. And uh, uh, so it, it was a, a case where the revolution was hijacked by the clerics, and then they imposed a certain kind of rule on Iran, which ultimately wasn't very popular. I mean, we think that... Uh, in most elections, if the Iranian people have had their say, the hardline religious groups wouldn't get more than 15% of the vote. So, um, you know, Iranian middle class and youth are quite rebellious with regard to the religious puritanism that has been a keynote of the Iranian state. Um, Every once in a while you see notices in the Iranian press about how a nefarious internet dating group has been busted <laughs> up. Uh, and... Uh, uh, at, at parties and middle class parties in places like Tehran, uh, uh, the, the, the hosts are considered cheap if they don't serve liquor, uh, which is forbidden in Islam. Uh, in, in some places, uh, in towns over near Afghanistan, apparently uh, uh, the host is uh, uh, expected to supply some heroin uh, because the poppies are nearby and, and so forth. So uh, there's a lot of drug addiction, there's alcohol abuse, there's um, uh, prostitution. Uh, Iran represents itself as a religious state, uh, but its society is beset by many moral problems, and there seems to be an enormous disaffection among the youth towards religion and towards the regime. So, so uh, you're, you're suggesting that as an intervention uh, has an unintended consequence, which is to, in a way, provoke or empower the very forces that ideally uh, we would not favor in that region? Well, I, I'd, I'd nuance it a little bit by saying that uh, in the early 50s when the United States overthrew the democratically elected government of Iran, um, 
the main reason for doing it and the main fear of the driving Washington at the time was uh, a fear of the Communist Party in Iran, uh, the two-day party. Uh, and Mossadegh, the, the nationalist prime minister who was overthrown, um, led a, 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 a coalition, a, a broad-based movement that had several wings. He represented uh, kind of the educated middle class, I think, uh, and uh, was, if anything, right of center. In fact, he was an aristocrat, uh, descended from, uh, from nobles of the Qajar dynasty. Uh, but um, he did allow the, the Iranian Communist Party into his coalition as the left wing of it. And he also allowed uh, Ayatollah Kashani into his coalition as the right wing of it, as the religious wing. Uh, and uh, there are uh, firm indications in uh, U.S. diplomatic documents uh, that out in the countryside, uh, U.S. Uh, diplomats and uh, aid workers and others uh, were actively encouraging the Shiite right hmm. as a way of offsetting the communists. Uh, and I think Sounds you would... like Israel. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. but I think the Israeli policy uh, of uh, encouraging Hamas in the 19, uh, late 1970s mm -hmm. and through the 80s uh, is, is not um, a newly invented strategy. And I think if, as we get into the archives, we'll find that all through the 50s, the United States uh, uh, was hoping that Islamic... Uh, revivalism would offset uh, communism, and there were instances where uh, it gave support to that. So uh, there's there's a letter from a, a Shiite Iranian in Mashhad in the early 50s to the U.S. Embassy saying, "You people are encouraging so and so Mullah, who is a clergyman who's very right wing, and this is a big mistake. Uh, this man is no friend of the United States or of democracy. And if you keep encouraging these kinds of people, there's, uh, uh, it's going to be very bad for everybody." Uh, so uh, I think the um, the overthrow of Mossadegh uh, did weaken the Communist Party in Iran, uh, but uh, it, uh, it didn't uh, significantly weaken the religious right, and ultimately it was the religious right that proved uh, a greater danger to U.S. interests in Iran than, than the Communists. Is, is there any way that this discussion can help us get a handle on the the nuclear project of Iran, because it, it, it seems to me that that in the end, uh, what you're suggesting is that even a, a, a very conservative regime religiously in Iran will actually be going after what has been a, a modern technological solution to the problem of ensuring state security basically when threatened by uh, say global superpowers from outside so it's not so surprising then that like every other state in uh, that feels threatened it would aspire to acquire nuclear weapons well it, it's it's worse because uh, the United States actively encouraged countries in the Middle East to develop nuclear power, not nuclear weapons, but nuclear mm -hmm. power, back in the 50s when the U.S. was, uh, the, the uh, nuclear energy um, was led by the, uh, you know, the industry was led by the United States, and there, was ho there, were, there were hopes, I think, that U.S. companies could make money abroad and so forth. So uh, there was something called Atoms for Peace, 
that was encouraged by the Eisenhower administration. And uh, uh, the pressure was put on uh, governments in Tehran and Baghdad to have nuclear generators. Uh, and uh, uh, it's the origin of a lot of these uh, nuclear programs. So it's Adams, the American-backed Adams for Peace. The Shah uh, developed three uh, light water reactors uh, at Bushehr. Uh, and uh, the, the Shah's ideology, uh, this is the absolute monarch of, of Iran in the 1960s and 70s, the Shah's ideology was a very modernizing ideology. Uh, he would tear down the old bazaars and uh, uh, sort of insist that uh, you put in strip malls instead. and. Uh, uh, I, th I think he had a rather Philistine view of what modernity was, but uh, the, the nuclear power uh, plants were certainly symbols for him of Iran's modernity. And he once said uh, that in, in, tw in 20 years, Iran would be like France. That was his hope for the country. When Khomeini came to power in 1979, he actually closed down the nuclear energy program. Uh, Khomeini, as a Shiite Muslim theologian, um, felt that uh, nuclear power was evil, and certainly nuclear bombs were evil. Uh, it's forbidden in Islam to murder innocents, and it's certainly forbidden uh, in Islam to kill large numbers of civilians in the course of warfare. Uh, in, in, in medieval uh, Muslim ethical thought about the just war, uh, it, it, you have to be chivalrous. You have to tell the enemy you're coming three days before you arrive. You have to give them an opportunity to uh, to back down, or if they're not Muslims, to convert to Islam. Uh, when you fight them, you may not kill uh, women and children who are non-combatants, uh, and so forth. So, uh, from a Muslim point of view, from the point of view of Muslim jurisprudence, uh, dropping bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima was clearly evil, and Khomeini said so. Uh, and so he tried to close down the nuclear program. But there were people around him, like uh, Akbar, Hash uh, uh, Akbar uh, Rafsanjani, who, um, uh, although they were clerics, uh, had uh, uh, a more ambitious point of view on things and who felt that Iran would need uh, the nuclear program. Uh, and uh, after Khomeini's death, uh, in 1989, they, they quickly resurrected it. So uh, they checked around. They tried to get Russian help uh, with the, the, the generators and, and so forth. It is not entirely clear that the Iranian regime is working uh, full speed ahead on a nuclear bomb. Uh, they certainly are working on nuclear energy. Uh, but uh, even if they are trying to get a bomb, uh, the national intelligence estimate that's recently been released suggests that they're a good 10 years away. Um, one could understand if they were trying to get a bomb. After all, Russia has them, and Russia is, uh, is, is nearby and has been a traditional imperial power in Iran. Northern Iran has very frequently been dominated by Russia. Uh, Pakistan has them, which is uh, just next door. India has them, not so far away. Uh, Israel has them, and uh, the Iranian regime views Israel as an enemy. Uh, the United States has them on nuclear submarines all around the world, uh, and again, an enemy of Iran. So, uh, uh, and, and I think the um, 
the way the Bush administration has approached these matters would, if anything, impel uh, Iran to try to get a nuclear weapon because uh, there were three members of the Axis of Evil that uh, David Frum uh, uh, put into Bush's mouth, and uh, they are North Korea and Iran and Iraq. Uh, uh, we saw what happened to Iraq, which didn't in fact have nuclear weapons and, and didn't in fact have a nuclear weapons program, but the Americans uh, the, in Washington uh, seem to have th thought that they did. Uh, but nothing has happened to North Korea, and it is widely thought that North Korea already has uh, at least some small bombs. Uh, so um, if you're an Iranian politician, yeah, what, what lesson do you, yeah. you, you, uh, you draw from this experience? Yes. Very clearly, the the, uh, the answer is. Uh, I want to ask you. Uh, we, I think we can agree that American policy has reflected a total, uh, almost complete in, uh, ignorance of the insights that might come out of Middle East studies, and that we're we're now in an unbelievable messy situation. Do, do you have any thoughts drawing on your historical knowledge, on your understanding of the region, about what the course looks like that might get us out of Iraq in a way that doesn't create chaos or an instability that uh, would truly undermine our global interests? Well, it's a very important question, uh, because uh, as of September 11th, we discovered that even a poor uh, developing country like Afghanistan, one of the poorest in Asia, uh, which uh, the U.S. had uh, engaged as an arena for battling the Soviet Union via the, uh, uh, the Mujahideen, uh, what Reagan called the Freedom Fighters in the 1980s, uh, even a country like that can become a base from which the United States is, is attacked on its homeland. Um, if that's true, then a modern, urbanized, industrialized, relatively literate society like Iraq uh, is a society that, that certainly could generate far more dangerous threats. Uh, and uh, so how the United States gets out of Iraq uh, is crucial to the destiny of our nation. Uh, there are many who believe that the U.S. should just pick up stakes and get out uh, and sort of do as was done in Vietnam. Uh, but in Vietnam, uh, it's quite a different situation. The, the, uh, we now know that the communists were near to taking over anyway and that many of the uh, officers in the South Vietnamese military uh, were in fact double agents and had already gone over to the north uh, and so forth. And so you had a nationalist movement uh, with an ideological slant which uh, was in position to take over the whole country and uh, not only did it uh, uh, achieve a certain political stability but it then was invaded Cambodia and uh, tried to do something about stability there as well. Uh, with a horrible price, of course, and loss of, a loss of, of, of individual liberties uh, uh, and so forth. But still, uh, Southeast Asia stabilized itself over time uh, in way, and, and did not become a threat uh, to the United States. Uh, and the domino theory didn't work out uh, very well uh, and so forth. But I would argue the situation in Iraq is very different. Uh, there is no national movement that could hope to unite the country and provide stability. 
even on an authoritarian basis in the wake of a U.S. withdrawal. Uh, the Kurds in the north, who are 20% of the population, um, mostly want their own state and have secessionist tendencies. Uh, the, uh, the Shiites in the south uh, would like to keep Iraq together, uh, but they want a greater share of the oil resources that are in their regions, and that, that desire could itself break up Iraq. The Sunni Arabs have no petroleum at the moment uh, developed in their areas, and so they are threatened with being reduced to uh, being very poor, to being poorer than the Jordanians, uh, and they're very well aware of this. Uh, they talk about being left with nothing but the, the desert dust around Fallujah. Um, and, and now you have a very vital uh, and organized uh, underground militias who are fighting a low-intensity guerrilla war. The only thing that keeps that a low-intensity war and keeps it a guerrilla war is the U.S. presence. Because when I was in Lebanon, I saw these neighborhood militias uh, can form themselves into essentially armies. And then they go out from the neighborhood and they try to conquer territory. They're turf wars, and sometimes they'll go out of the city. Uh, so the, the Palestinian uh, militia uh, went down from, from uh, West Beirut down to Damur, which was a, a Christian uh, town sort of behind Muslim lines, and committed a massacre there in, in January of 1976. Uh, the same kinds of things would certainly happen uh, in Iraq if the United States were not there now. And there's danger of this spiraling into a, a, a large-scale civil war of, of the sort we saw mm -hmm. in uh, Yugoslavia, uh, in, uh, in Afghanistan, in Cambodia, or, you know, in, in, in some of these conflicts in Afghanistan and Cambodia both, we think about a million people died, and this could happen in Iraq uh, very easily. So, um, and then there's danger that the Iranians and the Saudis uh, would be drawn into supporting one side or the other. And, you'd, you'd, and the Turks, too. The Turks could come in in the north uh, on behalf of the Iraqi Turkmen who are in conflict with the Kurds. Uh, so it could become a regional war, and, uh, and it's very destabilizing uh, to the world to have a regional war in the Middle East of this sort. Uh, more especially since 20% uh, of the world's proven, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, two-thirds of the world's uh, proven petroleum reserves are, are, are in the Persian Gulf region, uh, and uh, Saudi Arabia uh, is the world's largest exporter of petroleum, over 7 million barrels a day. Uh, and uh, so if... if if the war, if a regional war broke out over a civil war in Iraq uh, and there was pipeline sabotage on a large scale in the region, uh, it, it could be a huge disaster for the industrial world. Uh, and however much we don't like petroleum, right now our society is running on it and, and you don't want to see it uh, uh, interrupted and you, you throw the country into deep economic uh, depression. Uh, so how we get out of Iraq is extremely important. Of course there's also a danger that uh, the Sunni Arab areas, which uh, have increasingly turned to uh, revivalist Islamic movements, uh, could become a base uh, for attacks on the United States of an al-Qaeda sort. And there has been talk about uh, that sort of thing, uh, the taking revenge for the assault on Fallujah by the Marines uh, by hitting the U.S. Uh, and uh, one worries about this in the long term. The Europeans... Uh, uh, Jean-Louis Bourrier, one of the great uh, anti-terrorist uh, figures in France, uh, a judge who's dealt with this issue, uh, is convinced that Iraq is becoming an incubator for terrorism in Europe. So um, 
the U.S. obviously does have to get back out of Iraq. This thing has gone very badly awry, and uh, the U.S. ground troops that are there are no longer doing any good in, in regard to achieving a military or political mission. Uh, but I also don't think you can just up and withdraw altogether from, from Iraq. Uh, the one hope is that the Shiites and the Kurds, uh, who have struck a bargain with one another to make a new government, uh, uh, can put together uh, uh, an army, a military, that's sufficiently loyal to the new state and sufficiently good at fighting uh, that ultimately it could protect them from uh, the Sunni Arab guerrillas. Uh, and I think they're going to need some help with that. Uh, I have suggested that we should uh, uh, keep some special ops forces and some air power on their side uh, for, for as long as they need it. Uh, some people are afraid that making a suggestion like that implies that it, it means one wants the United States to be in Iraq in the long term. I don't worry about the United States being in Iraq in the long term. Uh, the, the U.S. Uh, can't have bases in countries that don't want it to have bases. And you saw that in the Philippines. I guarantee you that the U.S. Navy wants bases in the Philippines, uh, but they can't have them because the Philippines mm -hmm. Parliament asked them to leave. And uh, the day that Grand Ayatollah Sistani gets up in the morning and gives a fatwa that foreign troops should leave Iraq, uh, is the day that the withdrawal would begin, uh, and uh, the U.S. would just have nothing to say about that. So I don't, I, I'm sanguine that in making this suggestion uh, that the U.S. find a way to support uh, the building Iraqi military, uh, that, that I'm not, it's not a recipe for a long-term U.S. military presence in Iraq. I think that, that, that cow is out of the barn. I mean, with Abu Ghraib and all of the other scandals and uh, with the guerrilla war, the U.S. Uh, constant bombing of civilian neighborhoods and cities, the Iraqis don't want the United States there. And the only reason that they're still there is that the Iraqi political leadership that's emerged in the wake of the fall of Saddam is afraid that they'll be taken out and shot if the Americans aren't there to protect them. I, I, I think we should need to jumpstart uh, the creation of a new uh, Iraqi armored division. Uh, last I knew, the Hungarians are going to give them uh, 77 old T-72 uh, Soviet uh, tanks, which aren't so bad, uh, and uh, which the Iraqis know how to operate. Uh, they were supposed to arrive in, in uh, September, but I haven't heard if they have. And uh, I think the U.S. has dragged its feet on creating an Iraqi armored division because they're a little bit afraid that it might turn on them. So I think the sooner we can start drawing down substantially the U.S. Uh, uh, infantry in Iraq, the U.S. ground troops, uh, I think uh, then there'll be less danger to them of any Iraqi armored division, and there won't be so many reasons to uh, slow its building. And until the Iraqis uh, can operate tanks and, uh, and helicopter gunships in an effective way, they're going to have no hope of standing against the guerrilla movement. And uh, so I think we need to jumpstart those processes. Uh, we need to give them uh, smart support of the sort that we gave the Northern Alliance in Af Afghanistan. They need us to put a laser on a... a uh, a guerrilla hideout and, and, uh, and take it out, we should do that for them. Uh, but to keep 140,000 troops there on the ground has become clearly uh, counterproductive. One final question, hopefully for a brief answer because our time is running out, but you're the president-elect of the Middle East Studies Association. Do you see a, a future in which Middle East studies can actually inform our policy and be effective in being an input to a rational policy toward the Middle East? Uh, 
Well, Middle East studies has all along been uh, uh, important uh, to policymakers. Uh, I've met UN officials who recognize my name because they've done literature searches mm -hmm. and uh, found articles that I had written in scholarly journals, uh, State Department uh, people. Um, uh, I've done briefings in Washington, which all kinds of counterterrorism people were there and uh, who, who had read, uh, either read my blog or had read articles by me. Uh, and I'm just giving myself as an example, but of course there are uh, uh, 2,600 uh, academics in the Middle East Studies Association and, and uh, they are widely read in policy circles uh, in the State Department and, and, and by professionals. I don't think there's a problem with that because the academic field uh, produces organized knowledge about the region of some sophistication. Uh, there's a lot of work on, uh, on Muslim movements and revivalist movements uh, that's important to current policy. Uh, and um, and it's, it's open. It's there often now. It's digitalized in databases. It's freely accessible. And, and there are uh, many uh, uh, career uh, diplomats and uh, others in, uh, in places like the State Department uh, that uh, know languages and are steeped in that literature. Uh, I think the big problem is that uh, the Bush administration in particular has run foreign policy in a peculiar way. Uh, I think there's increasing evidence that Vice President Dick Cheney uh, headed what was called the Iraq Group within the White House, uh, and that these were uh, persons who did not have deep knowledge of the region, but who had a policy they wanted to push, which was a war against Iraq. And, uh, and I think they therefore not only ignored all of the research that had been done by academics, but they shunted aside uh, the entire State Department and all uh, of the Arabists in it and, and actually forbade them, even after the war was over, uh, to go to Iraq to help with the, the running of the place. So you had uh, a bunch of 20-something kids who had no Arabic trying to run Iraq. And of course the <laughs> thing was a huge fiasco. But it, it, it had nothing to do with... Uh, uh, with uh, the expertise that exists in the U.S. Uh, State Department or the military with regard to the Middle East and the interface between uh, those agencies and the literature produced by academics. It, it had to do with a cabal-like uh, uh, way of running the government. Uh, Juan, I want to ha regret that I have to end the interview. Our time is up, and I want to thank you very much. Uh, uh, for being with us today and, and taking us on this brief tour and I want to recommend uh, to our audience strongly that this is just a sampling of, of uh, the breadth of insight that they can find at your blog which again is uh, 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 informed comment or wancole.com uh, so thank you very much for being with us today Thank you. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history.